Little Nas X's video. Jazz hands. Reminded me a lot of the artwork of Basquiat. Melissa Joan Hart would not have settled for this. Oh man, you're gonna have to explain that one. <laughs> Welcome to Literary Connections. We are friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, just trying to figure out the way that I impact others in Milan, Italy. And I'm Melissa Hansen, always looking for my perfect promposal, even when I'm not in the Midwest and I'm actually in San Francisco. Okay, this week we read You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. We did indeed. Uh, And as a quick reminder, we do not believe in spoilers on this podcast, so you can expect spoilers for You Should See Me in a Crown. I feel like this is a pretty easy one to summarize. It was a pretty standard hero's journey plot arc of status quo. She is a shy, reticent, trying to keep her head down senior in high school. She does not get the scholarship that she needs to go to her dream school, but luckily Her high school has this weird quirk where if you win prom queen, you get a scholarship, which we could talk about how that plot (laughs) works in a bit. Uh, She then puts herself in the ring to campaign for prom queen so that she could earn this scholarship. There's a bunch of trials. In the end, she triumphs over the mean girl enemy named Rachel, which may be a reference to Rachel McAdams, the original mean girl. And gets the reward of prom queen and returns to her status quo, self-actualized. I don't know, do you have anything to add from that? No, I think you're super right. It's like this very, very standard story where I feel like you could see a version of this like on a teen rom-com like in the 90s, in the 80s. And then now it's sort of like an updated version where really what we're pushing forward at each step is some new form of progressivism. I feel like when you're doing this in the 90s, it's very much about like feminism. Now it is a lot about LGBTQIA plus rights, um, as well as like, what does it mean to be a black person in a very white suburb of Indianapolis? Um, And so I think adding that sort of twist onto it allows it to push it a little bit forward for this generation, that sort of like overused trope. It very much reminds me of, did you see the new Netflix movie, The Prom? No, I haven't. It's very similar to this. Um, That one is a little bit um, more like jazz hands, but they had very similar vibe. We're in a moment right now. We're in a prom moment. (laughs) You must be loving it. I think that's what I desire. I think, though, what I want from all of these prom things is I want it to be the stakes to be higher, but at the same time, like, just as cheesy. And I think that it's really hard to actually make a perfect balance of you're doing the tropes exactly right, while still trying to provide like a modern amount of nuance. And sometimes I'm almost like, oh, I wish that we just like went back to like the perfect act structure without anything where you're trying to make everybody look good. Rachel was like a terrible the entire time. It's been so long since I've seen an irredeemable villain, especially after we read Tweet Cute, which I think was all about like, you only know one side of the story. Right. It was a bunch of redemptive arcs uh, and like making everybody look good, as you said. Yeah, that's really interesting that there's like a a tension between this plot arc that attempts to be progressive because it's about you run up against the challenge and so you could input any challenge into that and then you overcome that challenge and like you transform the status quo. Like that that in itself is uh, a model for, for a progressive movement forward or whatever. But 
that that depends on a certain it depends like if you're doing the standard thing that's been around forever it depends on tropes and those tropes like they exist in pre-existing structures of power and so like you feel the need to upset those tropes or i think authors oftentimes feel the need to upset those tropes because they're like embedded in the language of oppression sometimes and these two things are working against each other yeah i think what i was struggling with is so there is a way that I expected the book to go with the tropes and it didn't quite exactly go where I thought it was going to go. And I can't tell if I liked that or didn't like that. So if you didn't read the book, basically the main character, Liz, um, totally has the hots for the cute girl drummer in the band named Mac. And so there's this tension where she really, really, really wants to date Mac, make out with Mac, Mac. Mac on Mac, as you know, but there's a rule for all the prom court contestants that they can't actually go to prom with someone of the same gender. And so she's in a bit of a pickle and her best friend is basically like, what you should do is be friendly with a really hot football player who's a dude. And the prom king presumptive. And the presumptive prom king and make people think that you're dating. And how about we create a hashtag to make it seem like you guys are dating? And so in any other sort of movie, like I'm thinking of uh, You Drive Me Crazy, the Adrian Grenier, um, Melissa Joan Hart classic, where it's like very much about, you know, a a fake relationship for prom, where there's never a moment where you see her make a really active choice to deceive in the hopes of getting this. It's more so like, oh, she's like deceiving her girlfriend a little bit, but like basically saying like let's keep me in the closet but not telling her the reason is because of prom telling it's like just because you know staying in the closet in rural indiana and -hmm. also she does not actually come up with an actual agreement with jordan the football player about like hey let's pretend to be in a relationship so that you can get me this scholarship like all this stuff doesn't seem as crisp as it would have been in a movie like melissa joan hart would not have like settled for this lack of crispness and dedication to the goal agreed and so in what ways did it not go in a direction, just the, like the lack of uh, clarity in Christmas in the direction of her motivations? I just feel that Liz and Jordan could have like Bridgerton the crap out of this whole situation and done the whole fake dating thing and gotten all the social status that they wanted through all of this and the scholarships. And they just like never committed to it. So I find this really interesting because it, it forces us to think about Gabby's character arc. Her parents are getting divorced. She doesn't have a lot of control. And so she has defined her relationship with Liz as one of control. Like she, we find out late in the book, prevents a letter from Jordan from getting to Liz and has like controlled the way that Liz occupies space in the world and directs her. And Liz has consented to this. Like largely Liz has consented to having Gabby run her life with a spreadsheet and, you know, in the time of the the, uh, prom campaign with polling data and so on. Um, But as Liz becomes self-actualized and starts taking control of her life, it forces both of them to redefine that relationship. And uh, Gabby needs to step aside in order to let Liz be Liz on Liz's own terms. First of all, let's talk about that letter moment. It gave me classic shades of season two finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer when Willow tells Xander to tell Buffy that she's going to be doing the spell to give Angel back his soul. And then Xander's like, I have a message from Willow. And Buffy's like, what is it? And he's like, kick his ass. It's like classic, like best friend entrapment. (laughs) It's a really interesting moment that I also think to a certain extent 
that um, Liz forgave it so easily, especially because I feel like another thing that I really wish the book had delved into deeper was the relationship between Jordan and Liz. And I think maybe that is where I felt like the book was lacking. And that's why I them to fake date a little bit more, not in a romantic way, but in being these, the two black characters, the two black students in this school and their experiences. And I think that there is something interesting to the way that she interpreted basically what he was trying to do freshman year and telling her what to do, which is like, keep your head down, pull your hair back, make yourself small, like to basically step in line, follow the rules, um, don't make waves, because that's how you're going to get through this as a black person. And I think there were a lot of moments in the book where it had nods to that shared culture they had, like the, the house party dances and things like that. But I really think they never really had a conversation about you know, what drove him to sort of really diss her in that moment and not protect her. And other than the fact that he regretted it. And they didn't really talk about how that had impacted him across the four years of high school and whether or not he was still hiding parts of himself as well. I, th- I, th- I just think that relationship was a little under underbaked for me. And I think it could have been much better. Right. Yeah, that could have definitely been a more robust conversation that they had. And I, I think, you know, assuming I, I like to assume positive intent in the author and in this oh, yeah, case yeah. it might just be that she like wanted to make sure that Liz's narrative was the primary one and because in order to do that you'd have to explore like the psychology of Jordan and why he would diss her in that moment and that could help Liz understand better her place in the world and, and it could have gone that way but I think it would have sort of centered the man uh, when the author was maybe trying to center more the, the female experience. And I think she has a good job of centering like this on Liz's experiences and Liz's character growth is very clear. But I think I had the same feeling with um, her love interest, Mac, where I was like, this girl clearly has a journey here. Her mother has also died. She is coming back in the middle of the middle of the second semester of senior year. This does not happen in the world. (laughs) Um, It's like the most absurd thing. I like literally had to put the book down. I was like, this is, this makes no sense. I can't yeah. get over this plot and hole. If, if that ever does happen, like if a student ever does transfer for the last two months of their last two, you know, last two months of their high school life, they are bitter. Yes. They are terrible. They are like <laughs> clearly mad at the world that this thing happened to them. And they just try to endure that two months and get out as fast as possible so they could do, they could take control of their lives more. Yeah, exactly. And instead, Mac is like totally like happy to be there and they try to justify it by saying that her mom had previously been prom queen in this like crazy town but then she promptly drops out of the competition right right she doesn't seem to take the competition seriously <laughs> right so she fashions her gumming there like that the, the, the motivation is to connect with her mother and then she just drops the thing that would be the pathway to that connection or doesn't take it seriously at all yeah and so there were these moments where I feel like the author could have built up these relationships with Liz and Mac and that connection a bit more, as well as Liz and Jordan. And I felt like those were really both missed opportunities because otherwise both the characters just seem a little too, they're amazing. Like what's wrong with Jordan? What's wrong with Mac? They're just really proud of who they are and they're there to just serve Liz her moment. Right. Jordan makes one mistake and it happens four years prior to this book's beginning. Yeah. Um, and doesn't seem to make any more. And Mac appears almost as like a fairy godmother. Like she is 
so the perfect character to help Liz overcome these things. And also is like best friends with Liz's celebrity hero. Oh my God, like yes. It's all these things that make no <laughs> that, that are over the top fairy godmother. Oh my gosh, yes. When the lead singer showed up to ask her out to prom, I was like, yeah. wow, how did I not see this coming? Of right. course it was going to happen this way. That's the prom proposal to have the, the hero show up to do it. Melissa, I remember when we first agreed on this book, I said that it was a line from a Billie Eilish song. And I always say Billie Eilish's name wrong. Am I saying it correct this time? No, no, that, that's correct. Okay, yes. Uh, but you said, oh, it's much more than that. And I, I still don't know if I know what you meant by that. Oh, okay. So this is actually what is interesting to me. And it comes to like sort of like is a reclamation of this phrase. So... You Should See Me in a Crown is from the BBC show Sherlock. Have you seen Sherlock? Yes. So there's an episode where Moriarty, the villain, says that. It's like a calling card. It's him, like, taking space. It's like, you should see me in a crown. Like, how I would look if I ruled the world. It's, it's, it's a villain statement. What is really interesting is, I think, in the Billie Eilish reclamation of it, and in this book, it's sort of twisting it. It's... Really, there's no difference between a villain and a hero, right? Like, you view the world in a certain way, and you want to be able to manipulate it to look what you think should be the ideal way it looks. And so I think there is something interesting about, like, pushing the status quo and feeling like you've been othered this entire time. And, in like, in the book, she says, like, oh, I didn't need to be made into royalty. I was royalty all along. And so there is something about taking that space and knowing that other people might view you as a villain, but knowing that your leadership is what actually needs to happen to drive us against the status quo and move progress forward. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, as I was reading it, the crown imagery is obviously present in a lot of the, uh, particularly like the last third of the book when the campaign is really heating up. And one of the key shifts in this campaign is when she graffitis her own poster to put a crown on top of it. And this becomes like her symbol. Like by the end, people are wearing shirts with this crown. And the way the crown is described reminded me a lot of the artwork of Basquiat, where he would put these crowns on top of like skulls and things like this. And it was like, uh, well, you know, one I think that you could interpret Basquiat's crowns in a, in a lot of different ways. But this idea of like bestowing honor on the physical world or in places where it doesn't like bestowing dignity to places where dignity is not usually bestowed like on top of struggle and on top of ugliness or I don't that's the wrong way of putting it, but like dignity onto communities who are suffering or bestowing it onto other symbols of just like death or poverty or whatever and like giving these things dignity. I think there is that level of sort of dignity in it, but it's, I feel like now we're in the next like YA version of that, which is going from dignity to celebration of these people like I thought there was something very interesting about the whole like yeah like the crown and then the fuck your fairy tale which then became hashtag f your fairy tale which is another thing that I was like we already f-bombed like <laughs> let's just commit to it all the way through that at the end when she has her dance moment at prom with Mac it's very much just like wait maybe this is a fairy tale like maybe I got my fairy tale in the end and that basically everyone is deserving of respect, dignity, and also like like the pursuit of happiness, like getting to that next level of like life, liberty, property, happiness. 
And while we're talking about that end scene, I'd like to get your thoughts on... So, you know, we go through this whole hero's journey narrative. She overcomes the challenges and the darkest hour, and she redefines important relationships to her. She gets her fairy tale at the end. Uh, She also gets the scholarship. She returns to her status quo, now, you know, confident in taking up the space that she takes up in the world and all of these things. And as part of this final scene, her music teacher who has been helping her try to get the scholarship through the, the usual means, the non-prom means, uh, reveals to her that she possibly has a second chance at that scholarship and says that he pulled some strings or talked to somebody and they've agreed to give her a second interview. And I was just wondering, like, if you have any thoughts about why this was thrown in, because it seems like this ending could have happened and it could have wrapped up the usual narrative um, without her needing that and I feel like it has something to do with like the author trying to respect the work that she put into that scholarship and not have it be completely for nothing but I I'm not really sure I feel like yeah it was confusing to me too it did feel like a you get everything in the end like a very Oprah moment with everything like the cars and the DVDs and everything but I think like ultimately sort of where I was seeing was to mark her additional growth Like, I think there were a lot of ways in which Liz grew throughout the book through the prom journey, but there also was the one within band where she was, like, it came up earlier when she was with Jordan, right, is that a first always needs their second. Like, she's always sort of behind other people. She's not taking the spotlight. The same thing with, um, she's arranging their composition for the concert, and she doesn't want anyone to know that she's the arranger. And so to a certain extent, um, and when she auditioned, she was doing it on her clarinetting ability. And what she actually earns in the end is another chance as more of an arranger. And I think that speaks back to what you were talking about before about her taking agency and control in her own life, right? Like to a certain extent, she had been performing what other people told her to perform and was doing to a certain extent, a poorer version of it that wasn't going to get her the accolades that she wanted. Mm. And so it's not until she self-actualizes as the director, as the composer of her own world, and then she is able to do it. That's good. That's better than the way that I originally was reading it because I originally was like, I guess the, the author realized that there was some narrative coming into this where she was then getting a scholarship because people liked her rather than on her own merits and just like wanted to add in a like hard work matters kind of narrative to it where she also is able to earn that scholarship through her talent and ability. But now this, this makes lots of sense. It's actually like really narratively appropriate if she self-actualizes as a composer and somebody that directs others because that is a large part of her growth in this. Yeah. I, I do wish that we had gotten a post-prom scene because it ends on like the very, very high, but I feel like there is like a very natural epilogue that we could have seen knowing yet, does she get that additional like composer scholarship? What happens when she goes to college? What's going to happen to her relationship? I feel like I just, I did have like a lot of open questions that I think the book could have still addressed but maybe i'm just like being greedy and i like to know everything (laughs) also also i fundamentally don't think like so when i was in high school prom always happens so there's the last day of school that's like friday or like maybe it was like like wednesday is your last day of school as a senior and then friday is prom and then graduation is sunday and i fundamentally believe this is how prom should always work (laughs) it makes no sense to me that you would put prom a month before the last day of school yeah 
so that if you're going to blow up all your relationships, you can like really do it. Blow them. Yes. <laughs> like the whole point is like leave no stone unturned, right. make a mess. Yeah. Like, do the things you didn't do. Yes, and then like leave with no regrets and with minimal embarrassment because you don't you're not gonna see anybody. Yeah, you can just walk away. I would like to start a movement for all American high schools to move to this model, and I don't know how, but this is this is maybe my first stand. I'm taking a stand here now for that. Great. I'm glad that you're publicly finally publicly coming out <laughs> on this issue. I just feel like there's like a lot of important things that happen at prom or even just like Emmy's character who comes back and now she has like a full month to deal with Rachel and her bullshit. And I was like, is this the right place for you? I, I just, that's also where like, I feel like there needs to be an epilogue. And if there weren't another month left of school, I wouldn't necessarily feel like I need Emmy's epilogue. But now I do because I know she's going to be in school for a month. Yeah, I, I think I'm super interested in the character of Emmy and that plot line because Emmy disappears. We hear about it secondhand. Um, and we have no idea why. Then she reappears at the prom. So, like, after the whole prom court thing has happened, and we never actually get the the book respects her privacy in the way that Emmy wants her privacy to be respected, and we never actually learn why she disappeared. And Emmy, if you haven't read the book, is Jordan's girlfriend, who is the prom queen presumptive in the same way that he's the prom king presumptive. Uh, but she just disappears. She just is gone for their senior year and doesn't appear till the last month. Right, which I think, see, that is another thing where if they had fake dated Jordan and Liz, it would take, if he was trying to take, like, attention off of Emmy's disappearance, I think that also would have worked. But again, it's fine. They didn't formally fake date. It's fine. I, I do think it's interesting. I'm nosy, so I really hate it when books do this. Like, I know when Faults in Our Stars ends and you're like, does she die? Like, <laughs> just tell me. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you need to keep this yeah. a secret from me? I don't think so. And we know John Green always responds to this with, like, books belong to their readers. Like, you you make the meaning that you want. Uh, and goes that whole Roland Bart direction. Yeah. But, I mean, yes, exactly. Ugh, I guess fine. <laughs> but for any, I guess to a certain extent, like, it doesn't matter. I think, like, what... Mm-hmm. she is representing is that idea of she seems really, really happy from afar, but you don't know what's happening behind the scenes, which I think they were trying to do in like a couple of Eagles. They do it with Gabby a bit too, with her divorcing parents. Yeah. I, I have two thoughts on the Emmy plot line, which is like a non-existent plot line. We, she, her character is introduced at the beginning only to like assert its negation, that that she does not exist. And then she reappears at the end, and we never actually learn anything about her. It's just like her the fact of her appearance is important. That said, I think that her plot line is really interesting because her path is a foil to Liz's path. So Liz has always been in the background, and her path to you know salvation or or you know self actualization is to assert herself in public space and to admit the power that she has and to inhabit it publicly 
But on the other side of that is the prom queen presumptive, the like classically beautiful white lady who also has a bunch of expectations put on her. And like she is supposed to behave in a certain way and she's supposed to be the prom queen. And so she's like living a life that's dictated by other people's expectations. And so for her to get that same kind of salvation and self-actualization, she actually needs to disappear. So like Emmy has to disappear in order to become herself, whereas... Liz needs to up here to become herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like Emmy did have, uh, it was a very strong um, Serena Vander Woodson pre-season one energy <laughs> of Gossip Girl. Oh man, you're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you know, okay, Serena Vander Woodson, aka Blake Lively, basically beautiful, blonde, popular girl who disappears and the entire first season you're trying to figure out why did she disappear from school? only you find out in gossip girl why i think it's because she thought she killed someone oh that's dramatic it was very dramatic <laughs> it's a very, it's a really big season one twist <laughs> but i don't think emmy killed anybody but i do think there is like when you're saying about like she needed to disappear um i think there is a suggestion that why emmy left was not for like family reasons or things like that. It was it was more so like a crisis of herself. Rachel makes like a guess that it's rehab. I don't know if necessarily it's rehab, but it does seem something of like she needed to have time to herself to figure out her own stuff, what other people around and defining her. That's really interesting because the, the second thing that I uh, wanted to discuss about Emmy's plotline is I saw it as a response to the like John Green's Paper Towns and... Carrie Fountain's I'm Not Missing and perhaps Gossip Girl, where the obsession with other people about figuring out this like pretty white lady's narrative, like why did she go missing? And then the the lesson of those books is always like, it's none of your business. Like you tried this whole thing. You like created a symbol out of this person. You put all these expectations on them. And like really they're just a person trying to figure out their own stuff. And it doesn't help when you're projecting some symbolic nature onto them. And so I feel like this book, by just, like, not making it about everybody else learning this lesson, and, like, the, the book sort of takes that lesson for granted, or it, it takes that lesson as already learned, respects Emmy's privacy, and then is like, okay, now that that space is left behind, like, now there's this void, what happens in that void? Like, who who takes up space when that space is vacated? Yeah, and I, th- I think there's an interesting thing there of... When you rebalance it like that, I think, right, there's often a a feeling of, oh, in order for people of color or women to have more rights, men and white people need to have less rights. And instead, I think it's a classic example of, you know, the patriarchy hurts everybody. Of, like, Emmy is hurt by the structures of being worshipped upon. Like, Liz is being, like, subjugated through homophobia and racism. And it's really hurting both of them. And they both need to find a way to escape it. And that they're able to find a, a mutual escape that becomes mutually beneficial, I think is actually a really good balance um, and shows that that exists. And then the one who feels entitled to take up the space vacated by Emmy is Rachel, <laughs> who refuses to synthesize or compromise in her self-identity as being the heir apparent to that crown. Uh, and it is, uh, um, it is her uncompromising stubborn behavior that leads to her you know essentially kicked out by in a top-down structure like she's she's not permitted to participate in the prom court because of the way that she's behaving 
So there's this interesting, like, there's a cultural movement to support Liz's right to that space, but there's also a, like, top-down authority needs to step in and actually say, like, Rachel, sit down. Your insistence and your entitlement is hurting everybody, and, like, you need to take a seat, you need to step aside from this prom court and let other people who aren't, who don't feel as though it belongs to them already I don't know, enter the court of public opinion. I'm not really sure what the message is there. Yeah, no, I I see that. I also, there's another thing that sort of came to mind with Rachel in comparison to Liz, where I think sometimes in, right, I think there's this like a uh, idea that we don't like people who want things in America. You kind of want people who have greatness thrust upon them. And so I think there is something interesting about like the only person who wants prom queen the most is Rachel and she's the worst. And then thinking about what makes Liz an ideal candidate for the first black prom queen. And so I naturally, of course, thought about Vanessa Williams, the first black Miss America. Recently learned a lot about her from a podcast, not just, you know, about her tenure on Ugly Betty. And I didn't realize she did not come up through pageant culture. She was literally brought in basically as a ringer to be the first black Miss America to a certain extent. Like she was an undergrad musical theater major at a school in New York. And she was like, oh, I could make money at this. That sounds great. And then literally in her first pageant season became Miss America. It's interesting because I feel like it very much resonates with what we see with Liz's journey, too, where to a certain extent. She's opted out of that culture entirely. Yes. And because of it, you lack the baggage. And it also to a certain extent, you lack the weight of what it means to have that. You kind of just you want it for a reason that doesn't have to do with your own self-esteem. And it allows you to have more power over the situation. There's also, of course, a relation here on the fact that Vanessa Williams lost her crown for taking a lot of photos that were naked with a lot of other naked women. And then eventually the Miss America pageant had to issue an apology for forcing her to give up her crown 20 years later. But I think, again, it speaks to sort of like an interesting change in uh, progressivism over time. Yeah, it is interesting that Rachel's character, as you said earlier, is just a villain. She's just villainous. <laughs> and and there's something nice to see where you don't feel like the person needs to be redeemed. I do, uh, you know, a little bit wonder if there's like some backstory to why her identity is so wrapped up in this kind of control and why it's like unthinkable for her to give up that control. She's confirmed that her mother was prom queen, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe there's a feeling that she needs to be in that tradition. I think there's also something interesting in like, let me let me go down a, a rabbit hole here and see if it takes me somewhere interesting. Please do. So in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, he sort of asserts this idea that in the time of like Achilles and Odysseus, morality was this like power, like might equals right kind of morality, where if you are strong enough to protect your friends and your family, then that is good. That's like what goodness and virtue is, is this like ability to exert your strength onto the world. And then there's a, a shift around the type of like universalizing religions um, with Jesus and Muhammad and so on, where you get this shift in what morality means. And it's not the morality of the people who are in control and have the strength, but it shifts to the other side of that equation where things like empathy and forgiveness and like if you get hit that you turn the other cheek and let yourself be hit again. And that's like where goodness is. And, you know, Nietzsche was advocating for a not necessarily a return to the, the like power strength morality, but a synthesis of the two where like 
you're not afraid to actually put yourself and say like, I have power here. And like that empathy and forgiveness and turning the other cheek are not the only ways to goodness. And I actually had this thought when I watched Little Nas X's video, because he's using all that Christian imagery and this like imagery of that empathy as, as virtue. And he's like saying, you know, in sort of a Huck Finn kind of way, like, well, if, if you're telling me I'm bad, then I guess I'm just a bad person because like, this is the way I feel. And so like he, goes down to hell in that dramatic way and like becomes self self-actualized as this like <laughs> demon um at the very end and there's something very similar happening here where liz's narrative is one of like she's adopted this idea of what goodness is which is like always letting other people have what they want and like that is what virtue is and then she learns this like synthesis of like actually, no, I have power. I can like assert myself in this space. And that is what goodness is because she is hearing all these stories about how people have really appreciated when she stood up. I think there's something interesting about the connection that you're making. And I think there's something early in the book where Mac originally calls out Rachel when Rachel's basically calling out affirmative action. And Mac is like, well, it actually mostly benefits white women. So sit the fuck down. (laughs) It's a loosely translated version of that yeah. scene. Uh, that's that's Mac saving the cat, I think. Like, that's where Mac, you're immediately sympathetic with Mac. Like, she enters the book, does that, and you're like, I like this lady. Yeah. And Liz is like, wow, that was so cool that you did that. And Mac says something akin to, yeah, it's important to call people out when they do or say shitty things. Like there's gonna be bad people who do bad stuff and you need to stop them but also there's going to be good people who make mistakes and we need to do something about that too right so turning the other cheek and taking another hit is not necessarily the virtuous behavior in that moment like exerting strength and like calling it out it's it's exactly what we're saying is like she's saying yes there's a point of character but then there's a point of action and your power and I, i do think it's supported in the book Another thought I had with this book is Liz's character arc, we've, we've talked a lot about. She gains power from, or she self-actualizes through appearing and like being in a space. We've talked about Gabby's character arc where she finds her salvation in this plot by stepping aside and being a support person rather than a control person in Liz's life. Emmy's character arc is that she needs to, in order to find herself, disappear and I like I we've kind of tried to talk about this, and I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. But what is Jordan's? It seems like he's already had salvation. Like he's already self-actualized. Like he doesn't really have an arc. No, Jordan and Mac don't have arcs. That is what drives me crazy about this stupid book. <laughs> like I feel like both of them that went through all this character development we never saw is because they're now self-actualized. Because like clearly he's like, oh yeah, I really fucked up freshman year, and Mac is like. I went through the journey of coming out in the closet and I'm secure in who I am. I'm like, okay, great. These things happened, but we didn't see them. And so now you're just really here to support Liz's journey. Right. They're like that Buddhist archetype of the the person who's reached salvation but stays behind to help other people. Totally. Self-actualize. And right, and because I just I feel like Jordan, there's like such a richness to like what that conversation could be. Whether being black in this small town, what it means to be acceptable being black in this small town of either keeping your head down or yeah if you bring us to football glory like that's an acceptable place for a black man to show his strength still to a certain extent be subjugated by society and us to own him or just like him growing up biracial and having a white mother like never really talked about um he's dating a white woman Tell me more about that. I think it's interesting that both Jordan and Liz end up with white people in the end. 
Like, what does that mean? Is that just like, what's convenient? It's because we want to subvert expectations of the two black people like have to end up together. Like, oh, I, ha- I have another gay friend. You guys should just get married. Like Sex in the City. Like, is that what we're doing? Which I th- is a good thing to do. But also, we it just we don't engage in that conversation. Yeah, we also haven't spoken at all about the younger brother. Oh my God! Who is a is like an interesting subplot that happens, and I think it's like mostly serves to show that she needs to balance all of this stuff and her self actualization with the community of hers that matters, her family, her grandmother, her brother. But yeah, we haven't we haven't said much about that yet. Yeah. I mean, they have a really interesting connection, but then he basically takes a seat to let her have her moment, but he maybe shouldn't have, and ends up in the hospital. Why does her brother end up in the hospital? I, because he doesn't take his medication, but why doesn't he take his medication? I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be a lesson that she needs to put herself first, because if that's the case, it's not a great way to teach that lesson, because she already was sort of putting herself, like, it, it just feels like it's punishing to her, no matter what. The way that I actually thought it was going to go is that he wasn't taking his medication because he was saving money for her. Oh, interesting. It did not go that way. No, no. So he just seems like an irresponsible teenage boy. Right. It might be that he is like, I mean, the lesson that I think it's articulated by the grandmother is that he needs to take responsibility for himself and that she can't be the one constantly being the caregiver and so maybe it's just like allowing her to not be the caregiver archetype because she needs to become more of the hero of the story than the like caregiver of the story. And for that, it's like the brother's responsibility to start showing up for himself and like not needing, I don't know, maybe it's just like saying that he's in an earlier part of his journey to become his own hero. And like it starts with him not depending on other people to give him reminders about his meds. Yeah, so there's also something about his optimism that his disease does not require him to take ownership of his medication schedule and i wonder if that subplot has something thematically like if it's pointed in a thematic direction that might help us develop some other part of liz's journey i don't know if it's like the optimism denial being as a theme as much as for me there is this theme around how do you cope with the generations before you and the trauma before you. And I think she and her brother take two wildly different approaches to how they've internalized their mother's passing. And I think to a certain extent, it would be more painful for him given that he did also inherit sickle cell anemia. And the thing that he needs to survive it is to be optimistic and to a certain extent be in denial. Versus I think for her, it is controlling herself as much as she can. Right, practice hard, get good grades. Like, control the six inches in front of your face, and then you can help yourself. All right. Uh, So, Melissa, is there anything else that you want to talk about with this book before we wrap it up? No, I mean, I feel like we've pretty much talked about everything. I think the one thing that I also had issues with with this book was there was a wonderful Princess Diaries reference that Liz did not get. And I just feel like everyone should not just know Princess Diaries from the Anne Hathaway, Julie Andrews classic, but also from the book series by Meg Cabot, because it was like literally my favorite book series growing up. So I'm glad there was a nod, but I wish Liz had known what the reference was too. But maybe, maybe I'm too old. Maybe no one knows what Princess Diaries is anymore. <laughs> so quickly, Melissa, what, where was that reference? Because somebody for whom the Princess Diaries is not always top of mind. So How dare I, you? I might have missed it. <laughs> How dare you, James? I mean, I know some things. I know the, that she's the Princess of Genovia. 
There you go. That's the most important one. Um, you, you know, the kingdom. I catch some references. Um, yeah. So I think there was a moment talking a lot about like cultural references and how these are actually different between different cultures. And so it was a point of reference of yeah, house party with black culture. And then when she's being made up by the nice pom-pom girls, they reference that this is like a very much like a princess diaries moment. And she's like, what's yeah. princess diaries? And they're like, oh my God, shut up. You don't know what that is. And then she's like, have you seen Drumline, the classic with Nick Cannon? And they're like, who's Nick Cannon? Right. Showing that they're pulling from different cultural databases. Right. But in like, we also all should have seen both of these things. But it's okay. It's okay. Um, speaking of the Princess Diaries, I did see that very recently there was a, a YA book published that's supposed to be a modern retelling of the Princess Diaries. Yes. Tokyo Ever After. By Amiko Jean. Yes, yes, yes. I, yes. I mean, I will do anything that is Princess Diaries adjacent and also obviously... As an Asian American, have a lot of feelings about being Asian American. So obviously I'm into that. Yes, please. Okay, so I guess I'm going to have to either watch the Anne Hathaway, Julie Andrews classic, or read the books and, and read this new novel, which I, from the time of our recording, this was published like essentially yesterday. Oh, we're just so, we're so hip. We're going to be so prepared. If you, if you watch the movie, the sequel does have Chris Pine in it in his first leading man role. I mean, so yeah. you have that to look forward to if you choose the movies. <laughs> he's the best Chris. The best of all Chris's. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. Join us next month when we'll be reading Tokyo Ever After by Amiko Jean. See you then. The best pine. We're gonna say the best Chris. He's the best Chris.